0: God, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask that you once again be gracious to us by sending your spirit to operate among us, to open our eyes, open our ears and hearts to what your word would say this morning. We thank you for the testimony that we have. Um, Almost uh, casually, it seems, um, referencing your nature as the triune God. It's just assumed in Scripture, and we're, we are thankful that, um, that you are gracious to us to condescend and, and to reveal yourself to us in, in ways that um, that comfort us, that encourage us, that remind us that you are Lord of all, and we can trust you. And so we pray today that our hearts will be stirred again by who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 13. And uh, we talked last time uh, about uh, the tale of two churches. Uh, we, we saw in, in chapter 12 especially that there was a, 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 a hint, a focus uh, that was uh, shown in the church in Antioch, which was, seemed to be kind of a Gentile-moving church, And the church in Jerusalem, which was the church of the apostles and primarily Jews there in Jerusalem. Uh, We ended uh, in chapter 12 with Peter leaving after being miraculously delivered from certain death. Um, And that's kind of the close of Acts on his focus on the church of Jerusalem. From this point forward, we see the wider mission of the church, which is to the ends of the earth. And it starts here. Uh, with Barnabas and Saul um, it's not a new thing that the gospel has been preached to the, to the Gentiles we remember some other incidences where that's already happened can you think of any just by way of review okay in Acts let's limit it to Acts no stop in Acts <laughs> Jesus was not a Gentile uh, Cornelius is one yes the Philip and the, Philip and the, and the Ethiopian Yes, Yes. okay, so those are the two incidences that we readily bring to mind. Um, And then the church in Antioch, we see that guys from Cyprus come over to Antioch and start preaching to Gentiles, and there's a big movement in Antioch, uh, and it becomes primarily a a Gentile church. So that's, that's not new. The focus here, though, the new thing here, is that a local church sees the need for moving beyond just themselves, moving beyond their town into a wider mission out into the world. And they take steps to fulfill that mission by commissioning uh, two missionaries to go, to go do it. And, um, and so we're seeing here in chapter 13 what's become known as the first of Paul's missionary journeys. And calling them missionary journeys is kind of a misnomer, just so we know as we go forward. Paul didn't journey a whole lot after this first one he journeys quite a bit here in the in the in the in these first uh, chapters 13 14 15 we'll see that <clears throat> but the second and third missionary journeys are actually him traveling a lot or traveling a bit getting to a major city and then and then starting a church in that city and then from that city there's a hub that goes out that that church then sends people out in the i guess the suburbs I don't know the church to the suburbs. There it is. But it's like Corinth. He goes to Corinth and he goes out. Then the third one, he goes to Ephesus and then goes, then, the, then the church goes out. That's kind of the way it works on the second and third one. But this first one, he's going to be traveling a lot. But uh, let's look at Acts uh, 13, um, verse 1. All right, I'll get there eventually. There it is. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What do you first notice here? What just stands out to you first? The Holy Spirit said. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll we'll get there in just a minute. But yes, that's a big thing. It's a huge thing. It's almost incidental, isn't it? What else do you see that kind of stands out? The diversity of diversity. Diversity of the, of the followers of the people that are there. What do they call? What does he, what does Luke call these guys? Prophets and teachers. What does he mean by that? Does that bother anybody? Our cessationist congregation. <laughs> he calls them prophets and teachers going on in the first century. What does it mean by prophet? there is that idea and that's primarily what it means this is somebody who proclaims an inspired word for the benefit and encouragement of the body or in, 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 in evangelism it also has the idea of foretelling we see that with Agabus um, that there's a that there at that time was a foretelling of events but primarily it's the speaking of an inspired word from God for the edification and direction of the community um, you'll hear it this morning the same Kind of prophecy uh, when, when Philip gets up there and speaks he's speaking an inspired word from the inspired word that's prophecy in the New Te- in, in the New Testament the church um, Preaching or prophecy in this as it's used here is a spiritual gift it's a spiritual gift. We already know that Paul and Barnabas Saul and Barnabas are. Um, are are good teachers. It says that Luke's adding preaching here or prophet here to show that they they are gifted spiritually. This is a a, a a special thing given for the edification of the church, and it's setting up what's about to happen, where they're commissioned to go out. I think that it's um, I think that's really interesting though. That Saul and Barnabas are not the only ones with this designation. Who are these other guys? Simeon the Ni- also known as Niger. What does that mean? Does that mean he's black? It does mean he's black. Translates the black man. The, <laughs> the black man. Now think about this, East Texas. You have here co uh, elder with Saul. And Barnabas, a, a black man who is designated by Luke as a prophet and teacher. I get a twitch in my right eye when people say to me, Well, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion. Give me a break. Really? Have you read the New Testament? It drives me nuts. This is the Latin word, Niger is the Latin word for black. Um, and he is at the church leading with Paul, leading, co-leading with Paul uh, at the church where believers were first called Christians. First. Not originating with Europeans here. Anyway. Just something to put in your arsenal when somebody throws that at you. Who's this other guy? Lucius of Cyrene. Guess where he's from? Cyrene good guess um incidentally some people would argue that this is luke the doctor kind of giving himself a signature line for this is my book or whatever that's hogwash this is a different guy uh, and and it's not luke says very clearly that he's writing this so we don't need that so the next guy is Menean, and what does it say of him it's very interesting Remember, Remember the court of Herod. The language that's used there is actually he is a foster brother of Herod. And what that meant was a lot of times um, it's very difficult if you're part of the royal family to make friends. So they hire them for you and they come and they, and they get kids in. You have to buy your friends. And so they get them in and they have them raised with other kids there in the court. And so this guy, Mennaeus is very well connected incredibly well connected socially with the court of herod. in fact a lot of the smart guys will argue that luke probably got his primary information about what's going on in herod's family this person was converted this guy at the court of herod has converted this from this guy Manan, who who's very connected to that family ff uh, bruce makes a, a i think a great observation about the sovereignty of god here the herod he's talking about is herod antipas And Herod Antipas is known for two major things. One, he was involved in beheading John the Baptist. And he was at the trial of Jesus. He's a stellar guy, right? And yet here we have a leader of the church at Antioch who was raised with him. How awesome is the sovereignty of God? You've got two foster brothers. One goes this way. One goes that way. Solely based on... The sovereignty of God. He chose him, he called him, he transformed him. And that's a pretty amazing thing to me. Alright. Verse two, who is they? Who's they? While they were worshiping the Lord. You think? I think it's everybody. You think it's everybody? I think I think it is everybody. Yeah, it says it says they were worshiping. And it doesn't give any indications there's anything special going on. I mean, they're fasting. And having the designation of fasting and worshiping may mean there's an intense, an intense devotional time going on there. Maybe they, maybe they have some sense of expectancy, and so they want to set themselves apart to be receptive to what the Holy Spirit is doing. I, I don't know. He it, it doesn't tell us anymore. They were worshiping and fasting. They got the fasting idea probably from... Uh, from Judaism, that was a pretty regular occurrence in Judaism. Uh, they would have carried that over. We don't. We don't really have that um, that issue so much in East Texas. We we, we tend to go the other route, where well, we were we were eating and worshiping, you know. Uh, so they're fasting. They're at a time of devotion. Um, and what uh, what happens here? Who takes the initiative here? Jenny brought it out a little earlier. The Holy Spirit said to them. By, how did that sound? I mean, they're sitting there fasting and worshiping. Everybody's hungry and they hear, set apart from me. How does, that, how does that happen? How do you think it happens? But What means does the Holy Spirit use to talk to them? A quiet, gentle breeze. Quiet, gentle breeze. The leaves rustled. Probably, most likely, through the prophets and teachers that were there. God uses the instruments, He places in the church to say, set apart for me. I don't think it was Barnabas and Saul that were saying this, by the way. I think it's probably one of the other guys. It could be that, I mean, if there's five leaders in the church, if they all kind of at the same time said, we need to set these guys apart, that could definitely be the Holy Spirit. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. But the thought is that probably it was through the leadership that this this came about as they were fasting and and worshiping. Um, There we have it once again that God takes the initiative in a major transition of the church, a major uh, event of the church. And yet the church does its part. And what's its part? What does the church do here? It supports them. There is that. Prayer, fasting. it's the prayer and the fasting. They're 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 taking an attitude of dependence upon God. They're not. I mean, they're not in the boardroom on the whiteboard doing well. If we did, th-, they're not doing all that. They're depending. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. You do want to kind of think through what you're doing, but. That's not their move. That's not their initial thing. Their initial thing is prayer, which is a dependence upon God. Fasting is denying yourself so that you are uh, showing God that he's, again, displaying that he's creator, your creature, and that you will deny yourself for his purpose, that kind of thing. The church is fasting and praying depending on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, And notice what the Holy Spirit says. He gives them a really detailed outline of what their work is. Doesn't he? Set them apart for the work to which I've called. I mean, you have this amorphous thing that he says, set them apart. They're going out and they don't know where they're going. Does that sound familiar? That's Abraham, right? He doesn't know where he's going. This is again something i think we need to recognize sometimes god moves in us we don't know where he's going we don't know what we're doing we should be obedient and you see that happen not just with abraham you have you have it here with saul and barnabas all right incidentally just want to draw this out because we are very informed in this class and we want to stay that way who does the spirit tell them to set apart again who? Saul and, Saul. Saul and Barnabas. Well, why is he using Saul if Jesus changes his name to Paul? Why, why is he doing that? Was it Chad who posted the article? Yes, he did. That's exactly <laughs> where <what> I'm <laughs> drawing this speaking from. speaking in Hebrew. Right, right. Because Saul is his Hebrew name. But you already know this because whenever we talked about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we made that point. So I just figured you guys would know this already. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is... Is the Greek name and it's kind of like I don't know if you have like a, a you call the the support line of any kind of tech company I speak to Bob? hello my name is Bob you know no it's not I know it's not but the reason that they do that is so that it relates to the culture and and they're doing and, and that's kind of the thing so so that's that's and it's significant here because, again, they're talking to them in Hebrew. He's, he's, he's de- they're dealing in, in Hebrew. But Luke will use Paul primarily at, at the end of chapter 13. And will use it really the rest of the time unless Saul is, is, is recounting his own conversion. He'll, he'll say, he said to me, Saul, Saul, why did he persecute me? And the reason he does that is because from this point forward, again, it's the Gentile focus. Paul is the gen- it designates him being the apostle to the Gentiles, as he would call himself later. All right. Um, so you see this, and how does the congregation respond to this? What do they do? What? We're losing two of our elders. We'll be down to just three. They kicked them out. They kicked them out. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> they said go. And what are they doing? that? In rest- how are they doing that? After fasting and praying, they do what? They They lay their hands on them. What does that mean? It's weird. For a guy who likes personal space, that just seems weird to me. Why would you do that? What are they doing by this? Are they ordaining them, bringing them up to their level now? You get a little sword, we do this kind of thing. Go ahead. When you go out, you represent us, right? You're going out from the church of Antioch. You go as emissaries from us. We endorse it, we support it, we we are a part of it. It, That's exactly the idea that's going on. It's not an ordination where they're bringing them. Nobody's outranking Saul and Barnabas here. They're they're in the order of authority in the church. They're the top guys in this local body. But what they're doing as a body is we're sending you out as when you witness, you're witnessing. It's as if we are there with you witnessing. Um, so that's, what's, uh, that's, what they're, that's what they're doing. They're, they're responding in faith. They're losing some of their top guys. But they're, they're trusting that God is going to continue leadership and teaching in their church by raising up others. Um, and they're doing this the laying on of hands here is a symbolic endorsing of the work and a submission again the church's response is one of submission to the voice of her king the Holy Spirit has given them instruction they're following His instruction Um, big issue here what's the big issue? the Major point in here, one of the major points, is what? You just said it earlier. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit spoke.
1: Or, I guess, a New Testament.
0: But an amorphous power does not speak. What speaks? People. People speak. A person speaks. That's persona. We're seeing here again why the early church could say there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. It's stuff like this. The word, the Trinitarian doctrine that we hold to as Orthodox, you you don't see that propositionally spelled out in Scripture. You won't see the formula. God is one essence and three persons in 1 John. You're not going to see that spelled out. What you see is the the early church reasoning from the Scriptures, exegeting the Scriptures. If the Spirit speaks, only people speak. Only a person would speak. So the Spirit is a person. And yet, it's the voice of God. Do you see? Um, Orthodox believers had to fight To to clarify that doctrine, that understanding. It it has been, since the beginning, the doctrine of the church that there is one God. And it has been, since the beginning of the church, the doctrine that that one God is in three persons. But how you define that, how you spell that out, was kind of uh, had to be hammered out. How do we? Think about this. It's true, but how do we think about it? Um, That uh, there is one God is known as monotheism. We we understand that, and and that's if you say there's one God, um, Jews will shake your hand, Muslims will shake your hand, rock on, brother. It's one God. The minute you say that one God is in three persons—Father, Son, and Spirit. Nope, not so much. And in some places, it can get you killed. That's a distinction in Christianity that we understand that the Spirit speaks. Uh, as early as uh, as uh, the second century, uh, Athanagoras, I think, is the name, echoed other church leaders by saying, "Our doctrine acknowledges one God, the Maker of this universe, who Himself, who is Himself, uncreated." So, monotheism was the is an anchor point of the doctrine in, of doctrine in Christianity. And the church has always believed in the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what would later be called Trinitarianism. And Justin Martyr describes the baptismal formula that they used as, um, as the, in the name of God the Father and the Lord of the universe and our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, they then received the washing with water. And it got to the point where If you weren't baptized in that Trinitarian formula, you didn't get a complete baptism. You got to go get dunked again. I'm assuming dunked. I'll make the argument, yes, it was dunking. But if you didn't have that Trinitarian formula, that was not a complete baptism. You didn't get it done right. You got to go do it again. As you can imagine, there are some errors that the church had to fight against with this understanding of the nature of God. Um, it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around one being three persons I, uh, I had a discussion there was a a girl I used to work with that uh, was a oneness Pentecostal and instead of working we got into this discussion and uh, uh, so we may talk about whether or not that was appropriate later and, had ha- and maybe I had to repent but um, we had this discussion on Trinitarianism and she got really angry with me and and pointed her finger, and wagged her little bun at me, and said, um, and said, you know, uh, you worship a three-headed monster. And I was looking for lightning after that. I mean, I. But that's the that's the concept that people have who don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the concept that they have. It's either you worship a three-headed monster or you believe in three gods. Which would put us on par with the Mormons. Or you believe that maybe Jesus isn't really God, which would put us on par with Jehovah's Witnesses. And those are really the two major heresies that developed in the early church. There's some big words here. Two movements presented some problems for the church's formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. First was get ready, you might want to write this one down. This is good at parties. <laughs> Dynamic monarchism. Dynamic monarchism. Monarchism. Monarchia? No, monarchism, And it, it originated with a guy named um, Theodotus in Rome and was spread by a bishop of Antioch named Paul of Samosota, which I find very interesting that Antioch had part in this, but I really find it interesting that Rome had part in this. So you have these two guys... Who are throwing out this doctrine of dynamic what's known as dynamic monarchism M- I'm gonna say malarkey if anyway monarchism is the idea of monotheism it, it, it is a, an emphasis of one God ruler of the universe is monarchy monarchia means and so you have um, a, a primary emphasis on monotheism and how do you then wrestle with texts like this that say the Spirit speaks. How do you do that and yet give credence to one God? Because the minute you say that there are multiple persons in the Godhead, you have the the reason takes over. You have to say there are three gods. I mean, that's that's the argument for this kind of stuff. And so this guy uh, from Rome, Theodotus, argued that Uh, Jesus was just an ordinary man. He's a good man. He's a holy man. But at his baptism, the Christ Spirit descended upon him and he was able to do miracles from that point forward. But he was not God. He was just a really uh, seriously indwelt guy by the Spirit of God. That was his argument. Uh, Church said no. That's we don't, we've never believed that. We won't believe that. That's, that's heresy. Um, I, I'm, I'm wrestling. It is malarchism, that is. All right, so that's... Uh, some word faith guys go there, though. I mean, they go to this thing where Jesus is just a man, spirit comes down, uh, because they're trying to make the argument that As the Christ Spirit came on the man Jesus, he can also come on you, especially whenever um, you're giving in your seed money. (laughs) That's malarkeyism. Um, But this heresy uh, gets trotted out whenever it's convenient and financially prosperous to do so, and you see it with those guys. It's heresy, it's blasphemy, and it has no place in the Christian church. The other monarchistic doctrine is modalistic monarchism, Modalism, also known as sabellianism, because of where it originated from. A couple of guys that were, uh, well, several guys that were, were instrumental in this heresy um, was, uh, let me see the guy, let me make sure I get the guy's name right. Nope, that's the wrong page. That wouldn't help you at all. Patrick. And it was not Patrick. <laughs> that's heresy Patrick. Patrick. Um, it was a, it was a guy named um, Praxius. Guess where he was from? He was approximately from Rome. He was in Rome, and it was also uh, articulated by Noetus of Smyrna and his two disciples, Zephrinus and Callistus, who were both bishops of Rome. I'm seeing a pattern. Um, and then again, it was popularized by Sibelius. And it's also known as, as, as Sibelianism. You'll hear it referred to that way. Well, what is modalism? Modalism got a lot of traction in the early church. And it was the idea that God is a great actor. Uh, he puts on a mask of the Father at times, he puts on a mask of the Son at times. And in the church age, he's put on the mask of the Holy Spirit. But it's one being, one person. He just he takes on different modes. So kind of like the, like the old pagan tradition of, uh, of maiden mother and crone, like, uh, yes. like the old woman, like how they typically saw uh, some goddesses. Right. They would, they would take on an actor's costume for the purposes that they wanted to do at the time. And that's exactly, I, I think, where they got it, is this idea. I mean, uh, and this took some traction. This, this was appealing to some people because it helped them explain how the Spirit spoke. It helped them rationalize uh, how that would work. Modalism argues that the one being and person that is God manifests himself as Father sometimes, Son sometimes, and Spirit sometimes, but he is not, they are not distinct persons. They are merely different modes of expression of the one true God. We can thank Tertullian. So let's thank him. Thank you, Tertullian, for providing uh, the foundation for a more precise definition of what we believe when we say Trinity. He, He formulated the idea, God is one in essence or substance, yet three persons. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God, and the three are distinct from each other. And Tertullian used several analogies for this he, he would talk about uh, the root the tree and the fruit they're all distinct and yet uh, you see that they are one in essence uh, he would also use a sun ray and apex of ray and that's when i thought that's modalism anyway but but anyway the, the the hard part of making an analogy is that god is unique what are you going to compare him to yeah Philip used a C chord. That is my favorite oh, analogy. Because it's auditory. The not the e, the E is not the G, but Right, it together, but it's, it's one C chord. Yeah, Now I, I love that analogy. It's a great analogy. Uh, and it's yeah, musical. Yeah. And you can sing it. So Kevin, how is modalism different than dynamic? Um, modalism still says that the Son is God. that That Jesus is God. He's just manifested or in the mode of the Son at the time of the incarnation. So he appears as different heads at different times? so then what does dynamic say? dynamic says Jesus is not God. He was just a really good man who was indwelt by the Spirit. So there's a distinction there in the deity of Christ is where they make. Interestingly enough, no nobody really fought over is the Spirit God? Because the Spirit wasn't incarnate. Um and so, that wasn't really a, a major battle. But is he a person? That was a battle. And, and so, they would try these kind of formulations that, that the church just kept going back to and saying, no, this is not what Scripture teaches. It's not, this is not what we believe. How do they explain the baptism of Jesus? If you're yeah. a modalist. Interesting. Yeah. That, you have all a good multitasker. three... That was my question to my bun-headed friend. Three masks on at the same time. Yeah, that was that was my that was my question, and that's whenever I and that's whenever I got the retort. You worship a, a three-headed god. Yeah, he's, he's just a really good actor. He's like the Flash, and he has you know different impressions, time stamp, whatever. So anyway, that's a hologram. That's what it was. All right. Anyway, I I didn't I. I just wanted to bring those to you. Sometimes I like to 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 go to some historical things for your benefit. These are not... Uh, heresies are like barnacles on a ship. They just, they just get added. They don't get scraped off a lot of times. They're still with us. These heresies are still with us. Modalism, you see, and like I said, when it's Pentecostal, you'll see uh, this kind of stuff. Um, there's been some argument that... Uh, that uh, guys like T.D. Jakes are modalists. I think a very credible argument uh, that they're, they're, they're modalists. Um, uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, oddly enough, three guys think that, um, that God is one being, one person. Hi, I'm Phillips. <laughs> Hi, I'm Craig. Anyway, uh, there's, some, there's some kind of, uh, uh, they deny it, but there's some of the things they've said have, have uh, given credibility to that. So you see this modalistic idea still with the church, still being fought. Uh, By by guys who are orthodox. Um, Anyway, any any questions on? I I just thought we'd do a little history today. (laughs) Any questions on that? Uh, Here's the cool thing: the the Spirit is person, and as we learned uh, on our on our on our trek to Beaver's Bend, you can fellowship with the Spirit uh, uniquely. You can fellowship with the Father uniquely. You can fellowship with the Son uniquely in different ways. The the love of the Father, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Paul would say. Um, It's one of the coolest um, books out there. Again, I commend to you the weekend. I'll commend to you in here. Commune with God by John Owen. John Owen is definitely Trinitarian. Uh, He does a great job with that. Anyway, so we'll do three verses today, and then we'll begin with Paul's first missionary journey next week. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you for the love that you've shown us by uh, shedding abroad in our hearts the glory of God in the face of Christ. We thank you that that comes to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, who is God. What an amazing thing to think through that for those of us who are in Christ, we have um, the entire Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity working on our behalf to see our salvation complete. That should humble us. And our response should be, like that of the church at Antioch where we are in submission to the moving of your Spirit, that we are in submission and uh, dependence upon the leading of your Spirit as He continues to make much of Jesus in the world. We want to be part of that mission, part of that role, reflecting you um, before a watching world, making much of Jesus, not only in, in what we say, which is incredibly important, but also in how we live it out So would you help us by your spirit to be who we are in Christ because that's what you have called us to be. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.